Our text is uh, our study uh, in coming up in March, and this is the middle of March, so I probably need to explain myself there. But our theme in March is uh, from First Timothy chapter three. That particular chapter is we're going to look at the uh, the work and the character of godly leaders. Uh, we're studying through First uh, Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus in our yearly theme, and so in that pursuit. Uh, we've come to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, and in that particular section of Scripture, Paul devotes these verses to presenting to Timothy qualifications for two different uh, servants of the church. Uh, the episkopos, as he uses that term, sometimes translated bishop, and the diakonos, the deacon, are also given. Qualifications for deacons are also given in that chapter. Uh, the Lord willing, next week we'll talk more specifically about the qualifications that are found there and maybe look at some of that terminology uh, to come to a comprehensive uh, view of what uh, of who a deacon is and who an elder is or a bishop is. But this morning I want to take a more of a general view and look at, primarily at uh, the work of the elder or the episkopos uh, or the pastor as the Bible describes it uh, and talk about uh, from the standpoint of our relationship uh, to that particular work, uh, ask the question: uh, Do we need elders here? Uh, and uh, if we do need elders, why do we need elders? And look at it from that particular perspective. As I do many times, I think I sometimes I back up a little bit because I think sometimes there's a need for um, some uh, some foundation uh, of the things that I'm getting ready to talk about. Communication breaks down. People use the same word and mean different things by it. Uh, and sometimes you talk to individuals and maybe you speak to individuals in the Word and they talk about their pastor or maybe they talk about their bishop. Or maybe even occasionally they might even use the word elder um, or overseer to talk about uh, those who rule the church or those who rule in the church. Uh, and sometimes it becomes confusing if one person means one thing and one person means another. Uh, and so I want to take a couple minutes and talk about uh, these, this particular terminology because uh, I'm going to use them interchangeably in our lesson together, and I want you to understand what I mean by the terminology of bishop and elder or pastor. Uh, the New Testament uses three separate words uh, to describe the same leader in the church, the same person. That should tell me something. It tells me not that the, that the writers of the New Testament are confused uh, or that they're just trying to confuse me, but that the direction and the approach of the biblical description of those who lead the church is given more in the context of a work rather than a title. If someone gives me the title, they give me one title. You're this. You're the assistant manager or you're the chief executive officer. They give you a title, then you hold that one title if that's, uh, if that's the purpose. The purpose of the scriptures in describing and using terms to describe a church leader is not to give them a title. I don't find any place where the Bible strives to give some individual a title to elevate them above another. What the Bible does talk about is a work that servants are given something to do. And so the terminology describes ultimately the person or the character in the context of their work. And the three, term, the three terms that are used in the New Testament are the word episkopos, which is translated in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the King James Version by the word bishop. Uh, sometimes it's translated by the word overseer. Uh, the word presbyteros, which is many times translated and most times translated by the word uh, elder, though presbyter sometimes is used in some translations. 
Uh, and then there's the word pastor, which is given most times in the verb form of that particular terminology. Again, focusing on what uh, the presbyter does is the presbyter and the episcopos uh, pastor or they poimon. Uh, and that those terminologies then are used interchangeably. One place to see this, uh, and there's the bishop is the one who oversees uh, the term of presbyters means an older person. Uh, we call them seniors today. Um, experienced person. A pastor is simply a shepherd. And in the verb form, that's what the word poimon means. It means to shepherd. Some translations, uh, such in First, First Peter chapter 5, will use the word feed. Uh, or in Acts chapter 20, will use the word feed. The idea of taking sheep out, putting them in a pasture so that they can feed themselves or they can feed. One who tends the flock is a pastor. Now what we recognize is that in all this terminology, that in, in many times the religious world, these words are somewhat misdefined, at least from their biblical perspective. Uh, many times the word bishop is used to describe someone who's over several churches or, or who has, you see, a diocese or a geographical area uh, of religious churches that he is over or superintends. Uh, the word elder sometimes is used to refer just to someone who is older, but certainly it was a terminology that had an official sense, even in Israel. Uh, if you just do a cordon search on the word elder, it's fascinating because um, the, we think about we talk we use the term elder probably more than anything else among God's people to describe the religious leaders, the elders of the church. And I don't know why we've chosen that particular terminology more than others, but if you look, if you do a concordance search, you'll find that most of the time the word the elder is used. It describes two groups of individuals: either the elders of Israel, those who were chosen by God to uh, to be the older, more experienced leaders of the nation of Israel, uh, and the elders as described in the Sanhedrin in the New Testament. Uh, the scribes and the elders who were, again, uh, the different terminology describe the same group of people, those who were older and experienced. Uh, and the word pastor means a shepherd. One place to see the way, why these words describe, how these words describe the same person, the two different places in the scripture where this becomes apparent. One is Acts chapter 20, when Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem to get there before the Pentecost and he stops off at Miletus and calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus to meet him there and says from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders, presbyteros of the church and then we, we, we realize later on that in that chapter he talks to them about the things that have come he gives them encouragement and an admonition and some of the things he says present this to us, there, he, tell, he tells the elders therefore take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood so what's Paul do there? Well, he talks to the elders and he tells them to be overseers and he tells them to be shepherds. So those terminology, you see, it all refers to the very same work. Another place to see this is in 1 Peter chapter 5. The elders, or Purgaturus, Peter says, who are among you I exhort, who am also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that was revealed. Shepherd, uh, the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, episcopos, not by compulsion but willingly, not by dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. Mixed metaphors, right? I mean, he, just, he mixes this all together from the standpoint of what it means to be an overseer, what it means to be a shepherd, and what it means to be, you see, someone who is an elder or someone who is older, episcopos. All of these terminologies are mixed together. What that tells me is that these, ter- tam- these terms in biblical sense are, inter- are used interchangeably to refer to the same person. So somebody, sometimes people ask me if I'm a pastor. 
And I struggle sometimes to know, know how to answer that. I tell them no, but I know that they're, they're using a word that way in a way that I don't understand it from the biblical sense. I'm not a pastor in the sense that I meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, or that I've been appointed by a church to serve as an elder or, or an episkopos. Uh, but what they're asking me is if I'm a preacher because that's the way the word pastor many times is used religiously. And I am one of those. But we have to, I think, keep the, ter- keep the terminology correct. And I'll be using this terminology interchangeably uh, in the lesson this morning. Now, to get to what I really want to talk about, does this church need elders or overseers? Does this church need pastors, shepherds? I would suggest to you that if we just did a poll, that most of us would answer yes. And that we would say, churches need pastors. Churches need individuals who make decisions. Churches need individuals who are leaders. And we might ask the, we might answer the question yes from the standpoint of a general looking at all churches as applied to this particular church. But what I want to more specifically ask and maybe address from a biblical perspective and challenge you with this morning is why? If you're going to say, if you're going to answer the question yes, do you know why this church needs elders? Do we understand why any church would need overseers? We might answer, well, this church needs elders because things just work better with elders. You know, for many years this congregation had men that served uh, very faithfully uh, and uh, very righteously in leading this congregation. And I remember back on those days, and there are some among us who served in that very capacity, and many of you who were there who served others, several different men who served as pastors of this particular flock. And I would certainly hold my hand up and say, I agree, things work better when you have men who lead righteously. Things go more smoothly. When there are decisions to be made, there's someone to make them. When there are things to get done that need to be uh, prosecuted and need to be, need to be carried out, there are men who saw to things getting done. And so when we think about sometimes the, how churches typically operate without elders, we recognize many times there's a big difference between how smoothly things will run when there are men in place to serve and how sometimes difficult it is to accomplish things in what we sometimes call business meetings. Business meeting, you see, is not an, an unscriptural arrangement. It's certainly, we strive in every way to make decisions based upon the principles of the scriptures. But business meetings, sometimes that arrangement, not only sometimes is not as productive, but as well can be less peaceful than when God planned for having elders in place is there. So we might answer the question, well, yeah, the church needs elders, and this church needs elders because of the decision to be made, there's things to get done, and so we need those elders because we need the decision to be done, and we need things to get done. But is that the real reason why this church needs elders? Is that the best answer to that question? We say, well, yes, this church needs elders, and the reason it needs elders is because the church needs to be scripturally organized. We answer the question from the standpoint that we know what God says. We've read 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. We recognize their qualifications for individual men to be put into position. We know that that's what happened in the New Testament. And there's a mandate for churches to be organized in the proper way in the local level. And that God designed the local church to have human leadership. 
And without them, we are less than what God designed us to be as a congregation. And certainly there's no question that this is true from the standpoint of what the Bible teaches. That there is certainly a mandate, not only from the standpoint of the example of the, of the New Testament and how the local churches were organized, but also as well in the appearance of the Scriptures and how many times the appearance of Scriptures that elders are there. Paul and Barnabas and Asia Minor coming back from what we sometimes call their first journey. And when they had preached the gospel at that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended the Lord whom they had believed. So what was Paul the Apostle doing? Well, he was teaching churches and strengthening them and building them up after he planted them. But part of that process, a very important and vital part of that process, is that in every church, they were appointing elders. They were appointing overseers. When Paul gave instruction to Titus in Titus chapter 1, a passage we're going to study the Lord willing later on, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And so Paul was telling Titus, in essence, that you need to troubleshoot this circumstance and know that there are things that need to be filled up or completed, things that are lacking that you need to, uh, that you need to address. And one of those is that you need to appoint elders. And elders need to be in churches. We also recognize the New Testament records the presence of elders in several local churches as we read about the history in Acts. In Acts chapter 11, it tells us about the elders in Jerusalem, that contributions were sent to the elders of the churches in Judea in response to the famine. In Acts chapter 20, as we mentioned before, Paul called for the elders of Ephesus to meet him at Miletus. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it talks about the church there being organized with its elders and with its deacons. Peter identifies himself as an elder in 1 Peter chapter 5. So it's, it's obvious then that when we look at the structure of the local church in the first century, that there were both elders and deacons that were appointed in those congregations that God expected them to be what we sometimes call scripturally organized. Even the appearance of the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3 in Titus chapter 1 would imply to us, would it not, that if there are qualifications given, that somewhere along the line, those, those men who meet those qualifications need to be set in office. And what that tells us is that God doesn't leave the organization of a local congregation to uh, our own thinking. He doesn't make it so that you and I can just figure out what we think works best. It's not a utilitarian approach, nor is it an approach where the church is to reflect the government of the day. We raise our hands at the polls and what kind of government do you think the church ought to have? We might come, we might, there might be several different opinions as to what you think would be best, but that, God doesn't leave that to us. And whenever that's happened, when men have taken the local church or even more than one local church and organized it according to the government they thought worked best, the social, cultural thing of the day, that's always ended up being apostasy. And I believe that's precisely what Paul's addressing in Acts chapter 20 to the elders of there when he says that the apostasy is going to come from among you. From the way the church has organized itself, there's going to come trouble and departure. But we answer the question, we need elders because decisions need to be made, because things need to get done. We ask the question, yes, we need elders because you see that's the way God designed it and we need to be scripturally organized and we need to advance to the point of a congregation where we are organized according to what God has put in the scriptures. But does that fully answer the question? Is that everything God would tell us about why we need elders or why any congregation would need overseers? 
Well, I want to suggest to you that there are some other things to consider. And that may, the, the things we're getting ready to talk about now in terms of understanding the office of the eldership may be more important than simply, I, uh, certainly I think, uh, more profound in the sense of application than just the idea that we need to get things done and there needs to be, you see, a utility to it, to it, or even the aspect that we need to fill in a chart with having elders and deacons and members so that we're organized scripturally. There is the work itself. There is the connection between those who lead and those who follow. And that's what's presented to us, even in the terminology that we've already addressed in describing the aspect of elders in a church. Why does God say that we need elders? Well, one passage I'm driven to in answering that question is Ephesians chapter 4. In the fourth chapter of Ephesians, as Paul begins to make practical application of very important doctrinal position, uh, points that he's made earlier, and the theology of, of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and atonement and reconciliation, and the aspect of salvation by grace, and the spiritual blessings that he outlines even in chapter 1, the practical application of that is that people must that God's people need to walk worthy of the calling which with they call. And we studied this in an extensive way back, I think, as 2016 as the theme for our teaching throughout the year. Is What does it mean to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called that Paul begins chapter 4 with? And one of the elements of that is that, you see, we are to maintain, be eager to maintain the unity that's provided by the Spirit of God. But one of the first things Paul says about the application of doctrine to the life of the Christian, particularly the life of the church, is that the purpose of this doctrine is so that you and I can maintain a unity that's been provided by the Spirit of God. And we might notice this unity or this oneness of God's church was created by the Spirit of God, not created by us. The unity of God's people is not some ecumenical accomplishment by men where we all get together and put our heads together. It's not... It doesn't, it's not accomplished by us all being able somehow to hold hands and get along. The unity of God's church is based upon doctrine. It's based upon the truth that's been revealed. And that's certainly what Paul presents here. After he gives the commandment for us to maintain the unity of the Spirit, he characterizes that unity by the ones that are found in verses 4-6. through six. What is the unity of the Spirit? Well, there, there is one body and one Spirit. As you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul's advancing an argument here. He's saying that you and I have an obligation as a congregation to maintain the unity of the Spirit that's based upon the revelation of truth and the doctrine that's there, that there are not many lords, there are not many faiths, there are not many baptisms. We have to be united on these things. And God provides the basis of that unity through revelation. But how could a church keep this unity? How could it, this could be accomplished that even in a local congregation we could be able to be one in all of these things, particularly in the aspect, you see, of our practices? What Paul goes on to say is that Jesus provided this for, for this task by providing grace to the church. He says in verse 4 that grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God's given grace. Is he talking about salvation? Does he mean that because God has saved us by grace and the provision of Jesus? That what he's under discussion. They will all be one because Jesus has saved us by grace. Well, certainly that's foundational to our unity. We all believe in the same Savior. We're all saved the same way. We'll all be justified the same way. 
But I would continue, that's not what Paul is, is mentioning here. That what he's referring to by the aspect of the grace that was given is what's explained later on in the context when he says that God, has, in quoting the Old Testament, that Jesus has given gifts unto men. He's provided this task by providing grace in the sense of gifts. And the word charas many times means the aspect of gifts. Well, what are the gifts? In verse 11, he tells us that he gave to the church some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Paul tells the church at Ephesus that God provided grace in the form of gifts. And these gifts are not material gifts but rather they are individuals or what we might more see in the perspective of roles of work. How will God provide for the unity of His church? He has provided for it by the aspect of service or work or ministry of individuals that have been provided certain responsibilities and fulfilling those responsibilities. Well, who are these folks? Well, He gave some to be apostles. The term apostle refers to the ambassadors of Christ, those that were chosen by Him, that were promised and given the Holy Spirit. The twelve, and then later on, Paul is one who born out of time, who were given the power of the Holy Spirit to make known not only in miraculous measure, but also in terms of propositional measure, the truth of God. So that they were the very ambassadors of Christ. It tells us early on that the church continues steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' job was to make known truth. It could not have been discovered in any other way other than through revelation. Connected with this is the word is the idea of prophets. And prophets, again, were special individuals who spoke the word of God through inspiration. In the New Testament, the apostles laid their hands on individuals and they prophesied. They became individuals who could make known truth that could not have been made known any other way. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 is that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That those particular roles and those those particular agencies were for a, a foundational period of time. They were temporary in order to get the church going, in order to get the church built upon the same truth. So there were a limited number of apostles and there were a limited number of prophets. After the passing of the apostles, no more apostolic hands to be laid on individuals. The period of miracles and prophecies was gone. But what we have before us today is the words of the apostles and prophets. The church today in any community is still built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets because of revealed truth. But God's not finished there. Paul says he also provided for evangelists. Evangelists were the preachers of the good news. The eugelion is the aspect of making known that message. And so evangelists many times are described as individuals who took the word of God where it had never been before, such as Philip to Samaria, to preach the word of God, to make known the message to others. Evangelists were not inspired. They weren't prophets. They weren't apostles. But they were teachers of the truth. They were preachers. And then he mentions pastors, a word that we've already discussed. Shepherds, poimen. The idea of individuals who, have we already mentioned, are also described as elders or bishops or overseers. We're going to talk about the qualifications of these men, but notice their position here in this particular list. What are they in Ephesians chapter 4? The pastors are gifts that God has given to the church so that the church can stay united and be united. And he connects with those, the idea of teachers, a more general word that means those who instruct the word. And the New Testament would include both men and women, those who taught the truth. So what's Paul saying here? That all of these gifts were given to the church for the purpose of maintaining the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. Now he's going to say more than that, but that's certainly where we're at in verse 11. 
of what Paul has described here. Now what we recognize about this is that all of these individuals, all of these gifts that God has given the church, from the apostles all the way down to the general teaching of the church, all of them have to do with the functioning of the work of teaching the Word of God. They are all either revealers or teachers of the Word of God. The function is in the Word itself. How will churches grow? How will they stay one? How will they do their work? By their connection to the Word of God. That's why it makes sense to us in Acts chapter 6, you see, when there came a discussion about some of the widows being neglected in the church at Jerusalem, that the apostles stood up and said, this needs to be taken care of, but we can't take care of it right now because we're giving ourselves to the teaching of the Word of God in prayer. That's our function. Set aside some other men who will take care of that, men full of the Holy Spirit. That, that need needs to be met, but we have our role, and our role is to teach the Word of God. Now that shows us that God made it that way and designed it that way. So that the functioning of the church would take place through the roles that men and women would play. Ultimately their own responsibilities. But how would this bear out? Why were these gifts so important? What was their purpose? The giving of these gifts. And remember, pastors are right in the middle of that. What was the purpose of these gifts? Well, verse 12 tells us. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now many times when we read through this phrase, particularly as we read it maybe in the King James, the New King James Version, it's been said that what Paul identifies here are three different works of the church. There, there's the work of the ministry, there's the building up of the body of Christ, edification, uh, and there's the aspect here you see of evangelism uh, and benevolence. And that that's what Paul is describing here are three different works of the church. And I, I would suggest to you that that fits from the standpoint of understanding what the work of the church is, but it's not a very good understanding or exegesis of the passage itself. Because what we recognize in the original is that the original prepositional phrases tell us that Paul is really describing one primary purpose and then two corollary results of the accomplishment of that purpose. What is a pastor for? What is the teacher for? What is the evangelist for? The word pros points backward and introduces the ultimate purpose of the gifts themselves. That these gifts that were given are for the purpose of equipping the saints. That's the primary purpose. That's what they are to do. Is to equip who? To train who? The saints. That's all of us. That what Paul's describing here is the activity of the whole church. But the activity of the whole church and the building up of the whole church is based upon the activity of these gifts. And then, in, in essence of that, he goes on using two different propositional phrases. The, the propositional phrase there is the word ice in the Greek language which means to or toward. And these two, you see, present the aspect here that there is a result that when the saints are equipped by the work and the role of the gifts that God gives to the church, then what takes place is the work of ministry and the edifying of the body of Christ. And so... Sometimes I like the other translations better than the King James because it makes this distinction. The NIV says that these gifts are given to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. And in those English translations there is a distinction there in the different prepositional phrases in the original language. So how do we apply this to our discussion and ultimately to the question we're addressing this morning? Why do we need elders here? The same reason that every church of Christ needs overseers. The pastors are one of the vital God-given resources for equipping every Christian and every congregation to serve and edify each other. 
to build each other up. We need elders because God's given us an obligation to grow, not only as a congregation, but as individuals. And not only has He given us that obligation to grow and to grow in unity, but He's provided the gifts for doing it. The resource for doing it, one of those is a godly leader or godly leaders. So in connection with that, here's what I would suggest, is that the value of overseers to this church is relational and not merely organizational. But I mean that the real value of having elders is not so that we can put somebody's name on the letterhead. It's not so that we can fill out an organizational chart. It's not even so we'll have somebody to make decisions, though we might if we get elders. And we might get things done better, but that's not the real connection, is it? The real connection is relational. It has to do with the aspect of the church as a body. And in the functioning of a body, every member must be active or the body's not what it should be and can't do what it should be. And that's what Paul is getting at in these passages. That's what he's presenting to us. That the elders are, and, and, the, and the overseers here positively stated are appointed to teach and qualify every Christian in the church to do the work that needs to be done. Not that we appoint them so that they can do the work. Not even so we can just appoint them so they make all the decisions about the work. But we appoint them so that they can get everybody else trained to do the work. That's what Paul says. It's for the purpose of equipping the whole church. So why do we need elders? Well, we need elders because of us. Because of who we are. We need to become what God intends us to be. And we are not there yet. We are not everything God wants us to be. I find that ironic when I, you see, contemplated upon that. That elders many times, the appointment of elders many times is viewed as evidence the church has arrived. Well, how's your church doing? Oh, we're doing really good. We just got elders appointed and in place. And that is an achievement, certainly, if we can think of it that way. And, but the, the idea is that the appointment of elders and the appointment of deacons is not so much an evidence the church is everything it needs to be, but it desires to be more than it is. That when we appoint elders, what we're saying is we want to grow. What we're saying is that we want to be more. We want to serve more. We want to be united more. And what God has provided for us to accomplish that are these humble servants, these men who will serve. So elders are given to us, and we need elders because of who we are, because of us. We need overseers to lead us to be servants because we're not serving enough. We need the work of the ministry, and elders are given for the purpose of training us to accomplish the work of ministry. We need overseers to help to make us stronger because we're not strong enough. We're not bringing enough people to the Lord. We need to build up the body of Christ. So what do we need to accomplish that? Do we need some secular program? Or do we need the servants that God has provided for His church to actually get that accomplished? We need to be equipped, each one of us, to the task of building up the body of Christ. One other point real quickly. We also need overseers because of them. And I'll do this quickly because I know I'm running out of time. But sheep need shepherds, don't they? Well, why do sheep need shepherds? Sheep need shepherds because there are wolves and lions out there. Because there's someone who's trying to eat them all the time. One of the duties of the shepherd is to watch out for the enemies of the flock. We need overseers to watch for the souls. And that's what Hebrews chapter 13 says. To submit to those who rule over you because they're watching for your souls. They're looking out for you. 
Real quickly, go back to Acts chapter 20. Paul's returning to Jerusalem. He's concerned about the church at Ephesus. He's worked there for three years and he knows he's not going to see them anymore, that God has other plans for him and he's not going to go back to Ephesus to work anymore. So he calls to the elders and says, come meet me on the way. i got some things I want to talk to you about. What would he talk to them about? How would he make say the things to these leaders of the church at Ephesus that would cause that congregation to be more faithful to the Lord or stronger? He asked the elders to meet him so that he could tell them about his own work. He begins by rehearsing before them that I was with you all that time and I taught you publicly and from place to place in your own homes. I taught you in, uh, in public assemblies that I did not hold anything back. I declared the whole counsel of God to you. I didn't hide anything from you that God had given me to reveal. You see, Paul was saying I did my job. God gave the church apostles and prophets and Paul was an apostle. He says, I did my job. I'm a gift to the church and I provided that for you. But what were they supposed to do with that? With the fact that Paul had done his job. Was that all that needed to be said or was there more? No, Paul went in to to charge them. He gave them specific instructions. He said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. The word take heed there means to be on guard. ESV uses the term pay careful attention to. To watch out for yourselves and for the others. Why? Because that was their job. That was their responsibility. Now Paul wasn't some kind of alarmist who thought that everybody was lurking around the corner to destroy his people. But he was a realist and he understood just as Jesus taught that where there are sheep there are wolves. And that the real destruction of God's people many times will not come from among the, from, from the, their understanding of the Scriptures but from somebody else who comes in and leads them away. And so there would come a time when Paul says that people would not endure solemn doctrine. They'd gather around themselves people who would tickle their ears with other doctrines and they would turn away from the Lord. So he tells them to do what? He says, pay attention. And then he says, shepherd the church of God. I've got to tell you, folks, that's a mouthful. We're going to talk about what it means to be a shepherd. But when Paul told those elders to be shepherds, he was placing upon their shoulders enormous responsibility. But not only was it enormous responsibility, it was absolutely essential to the unity and the life of the church as God's flock that they be shepherded. We get the picture. Paul wanted the elders here to act like real shepherds and protect the flock. He knew that the life of that congregation depended upon what those men would do. Would they be vigilant? Would they be individuals who were watching out? Would they be individuals who would be able to convict the gainsayer and turn away those who would bring false doctrine? Would they be willing to exercise discipline upon those who would lead the church astray and and get rid of the leaven that would leaven the lump? In verse 32, as Paul concludes here, he says, I commend you to God and the word of His grace which is able to build you up. Notice, Paul's charging these elders to do their job, but he does not fail to tell them that the basis of their job is in the word of God. What you're going to do for God's people is not based upon your own intuition. It's not going to be, you're not qualified that because you're a CEO of some company and you know how to motivate people. You're qualified to be a leader of God's people, a shepherd of God's flock because you know the Word of God and you can use the Word of God to accomplish it. So he says, I commend you to that. To God and to His Word. That's what will build you up. Don't leave that. And then in verse 35, notice how Paul concludes this powerful and passionate admonition. Before he gets done, he's in tears talking about this church and about these people that he loves so much. You ever felt that about a congregation? Well, something happens to these people. 
what would I do? Paul understood that God's flock was more important than anything else. His people were more important than anything else. Do you believe that? Here's what he says. I have shown you in every way in laboring like this that you must support the weak. That's powerful to me. What do you say to elders, people who are in charge of other people, people who have been successful, men who have been successful enough in life that they are put at the top from the standpoint of leading? How will they do their job? What can you tell them so they'll do their job better and ultimately be successful? Paul comes to these powerful, strong Christians, the strongest among all of them, and says, you remember this one thing. These are my parting words to you. You support the weak. You support the weak. Elders who forget that, leaders who don't do that, our perception that somehow leaves that out misses the whole thing. That's what shepherds do. They support the weak. And that's what Paul tells these folks. The job of an elder is to help the weak, to watch out for souls, to build them up, to train them to serve others, to make them what they are not. It's not to bully them or coerce them or simply to command and make decisions for them. The elder, the true shepherd, is not a lord. He is a servant. And he exercises the authority God has given him in that regard by serving. That is why we need elders here. Because that's what we want to be. We want to be servants. And we need those men who will lead us, teach us, and train us how to be servants and how to support the weak. So that in doing that, we stay one and we are what God wants us to be. And ultimately, we are like Jesus. Real quickly, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus is going along and he sees the crowds calling. They're, they're thronging him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And they can't wait to get to hear what he says. And he looks out and he sees the crowd. And he doesn't say, oh, I'm so glad you guys are here. You're doing just what I want you to do. He says he looks out and he has compassion on them because he said they were sheep without a shepherd. They thought they understood what God wanted from them, but they didn't. It says he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, so he sat down and taught them. Now that's what shepherds do, don't they? And that's what Jesus is telling us there in that passage. But praise God, we have a shepherd. We may be a congregation without elders, but we are not a flock without a shepherd. Peter says that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree, and that we have died to sin, that, that, that we having died to sin might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 53, isn't it? The whole idea about him. His, we are healed by His stripes. Paul's Peter referencing Old Testament. But he makes the point that Jesus died for you, that He gave His life for you and sacrificed you so that He might be your shepherd. You in that flock. Are you a sheep wandering about, having no leadership, no protection, no guidance, no overseer? Or are you one who have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your life, Jesus Christ? I thank God that we have a shepherd, that he died for us, that he is the good shepherd who cares for the sheep and that he loves us.
And you and I can come into his flock by obedience to his commandments. Will you turn from your sins and repent? Confess that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Be baptized in water and become a child of God. Come into the flock while we stand and while we stand.